0: Good morning. This is such a nice print, I don't think I need my glasses. All right. Today, our reading is Psalm 96. It begins in your uh, Bible, in your pew rack, on page 950, excuse me, 539. I'm getting my numbers turned around. I'm really not dyslexic, I promise. Uh, First of all, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for this book that tells us about you and gives us your promises. We pray that today as the word is read and as it is spoken, that you will open our hearts and minds to receive your love and your commands for us. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. For he is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are his... Are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Bow, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I'll be reading... Just a short section, two very short parables that Jesus told. The scripture reading is short, but the sermon is a bit longer this morning, so uh, just prepare you for that. This uh, begins at verse 44 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. They have stepped out now. Some to get ready for the reception for Tom that's about to follow, but I would just simply add my thanks and appreciation to the transition team that met with me monthly during my time here these since January gave me good advice and suggestions and feedback and that was most helpful uh, transition is a difficult time in the life of a family or in life of a church in life of a corporation or whatever transitions aren't easy so they're messy sometimes they're problematic I shared the first service uh, when our four children were being birthed, I was in delivery room with my wife, and I remember when she was in transition, it is not a pretty sight. <laughs> there are difficulties to come, on, and I didn't want to be within reach of her when uh, that time of delivery came. So they have uh, traveled these waters and navigated this church through these difficult times, and I'm grateful to them. I'm grateful to all of you for your expressions of support and sympathy and love not sympathy, love. Uh, <laughs> and especially those I've received in recent days. Thank you for uh, your many expressions. It's been an honor to to be here among you, to get to know your staff and make new friends there and uh, renew some old acquaintances here in the church that I've known for years and to make new friends as well. And that's not going to stop. We're still going to be around and still will live here permanently and come and worship with you from time to time. So, uh But thank you for letting me have the privilege of serving with you since uh, this past uh, January. I'm very excited about your new staff coming on board. Bart Edwards, who's already with us as your new associate, and Peter Bynum. I did not know uh, Peter before he was called to this church. I knew about him. I'd heard from many people about Peter. And uh, I told him at the early service that... uh, Either you're getting a great guy and a, terim- a terrific pastor or he is very adept at pulling the wool over the eyes of a lot of people. Because <laughs> people that I know and respect know and respect him and uh, value his, uh, his presence, his ministry, uh, and his many, many gifts. Uh, I will have Peter and all of you in my prayers and Bart as well as you move forward together in ministry. Uh, and the substance of my prayers will be uh, many fold. I will pray that uh, you will extend your hospitality to him as you have extended it to so many others uh, in the past and in the present. I will pray that you welcome him. And I don't mean simply to this church or to this pulpit or to the staff. I hope you will welcome him to your home and into your life and into your family. Make a friend of him. He's not just some hired gun who's come in to solve all the problems of the church. Uh, he will be your pastor. He will be your friend. He will be more effective, and you will be more effective as you come to know each other better, as you can speak the truth and love to each other. Uh, there's not enough of that in society. There's not enough of that in the church as well. So welcome him. There's an old theory of pastoral ministry that says that pastors shouldn't have friends in the congregation. That's old school. Theologically, it's called hogwash. Yeah. <laughs> The pastor's best friends will be in the church. So make him a friend. Introduce him to your friends. And include him, Bart, and your staff in other things you do together as a family. You will all benefit from that. I will also pray that you won't have unrealistic expectations of Peter or of Bart. uh, Because they're not miracle workers. They're not messiahs. Those jobs have been adequately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, His under-shepherds don't have to be those things. Um, And I hope you will give him the freedom to be himself and not expect him to be someone else. He will bring his own unique set of gifts and talents and experiences and temperament to this work. He will not be a Gary Bullard or a Steve Eason or a Rusty Douglas or a Jim Lowry. And even as I say those names, some of you are probably thinking, well, I wish he were more like this one, or I'm afraid he might be more like that one. But both of those fears and their wishes are inappropriate. He's his own person. He has nobody's shoes to fill but his own. So simply give him the freedom to be himself as he will give you the freedom to be yourself. And together you can grow and serve more effectively. I encourage you and pray that you will listen to what he has to say, not only from the pulpit, but when he's teaching, when he's conversing with you in the hallways, when you're just sharing a moment together. Listen to him. As he will listen to you, for I assure you, what he will share with you will be what he's moved to share by his understanding of the word of God and his relationship to Jesus Christ. He doesn't take these things lightly. And I know, especially in this church, I think there's so many passions around different aspects of the life and work of the church. Some are passionate about this ministry, the mission perhaps, a local mission or international mission. Some are passionate about the finances and the budget of the church. Some are passionate about the kindergarten or the uh, learning center or the, the worship services. We're passionate about many different things and that's good so long as you keep it in perspective. Don't allow your passions to become your problems. And don't allow your assets to become your liabilities realize that in a church we have to work together and there are many things that we do together and we need the support of everyone to do it well. I'm convinced that it's not great pastors who make great churches it's great churches who make great pastors and if you want to make Peter and Bart and your other staff as great as they can be then you need to give them three things I hope you'll remember your prayers I hope you'll pray for them regularly Routinely, I hope you will give them your presence. Nothing can substitute for your presence. When there are classes, when there's worship, when there's work to do. And give them your participation in the life and work of this congregation. There are many ministries that happen through this church. And it takes everyone to make them function effectively and faithfully. In a way that glorifies God and serves the kingdom of God. And if you do that, uh, you will grow and serve together as individuals, as families, and as a congregation. And I'm sure you will. As I thought of my uh, closing sermon to you this morning, uh, I will be revising a message I delivered to First Scotts Presbyterian Church last year uh, when my successor was coming on board there. I didn't do this because I'm too lazy to write a new sermon. Uh, <laughs> The search committee had come across this sermon somehow, uh, and they asked if I would repeat it today, and I'm glad to do that, and glad that I had a good bit of work going on this text before I got into it today as well. And I want to talk to you this morning about a great challenge that's facing this church and all churches today. It's not just a challenge, it's a threat. And I would approach it by asking that each of you in every household do a genuine assessment Of your discipleship and your churchmanship. Asking yourself the question, what is this church worth to me? How do I know its value? And how can I determine its value? I realize, of course, that the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ are not necessarily synonymous, but they should be. The church ought to be a manifestation of the kingdom of God. The world ought to look at the church and what happens in the church and be able to discern better what it's like when people live under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, the church fails many times, but that's our goal. That's what we're called to be and to do. We're a part of the kingdom. So what does it look like when we live within that kingdom? How do we assess what it means to us or to the world? Well, we can do that in a number of ways. We can do it objectively. If we think the Bible speaks authoritatively and truthfully, we can just see what the church or what the Bible says about the kingdom of God and about the church of Jesus Christ. And if we examine that, we will see that the Bible speaks of the church in the most tender terms, in the most precious terms that you can imagine. The church is called the bride of Jesus Christ. It is this bride for whom he came, for whom he died, and for whom he will return. The church is the bride. So we don't treat, we don't disparage the church or speak ill of the church because we're talking about the very bride of Jesus Christ. Not a bride without her flaws. Every bride has a flaw, and so too does every church. But we should honor and respect and love and serve Jesus' bride. And when we diminish or demean the church, just think what the Lord thinks, out of His love for those whom He came to save. Not only are we as members of the church and residents of the kingdom of God, but we're, we're we're called the body of Christ in the world. We are to be His body, His hands, His feet, His voice, His compassion, His justice. We're called the citizens of the kingdom. We're called the children of light. We're called co-workers with Jesus Christ. We're called the temple of the living God. Glowing terms to describe this hodgepodge group of people like you and me. But that's the way God sees us. If only we could see ourselves that way. So objectively, if you try to assess the worth of the value of the church, you need to look at what scripture says about it and decide, do I believe this or not? Are these just words on a a page? Or is this God speaking to me about this community of faith of which I am a part? Jesus loved the church. Loved the church so much that it was what was on his heart and mind when he was near death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, when he's sweating blood, sweat, and tears, he praised to his Father. And what's the substance of that prayer? Not simply that, if possible, the cup of suffering passed from him, But he was praying for you and me. He was praying for all of those who would come to believe through the gospel. And what does he pray for them? He prays for their protection. He prays for their unity. He prays uh, for their service in the world. That others may come to believe through those he's leaving behind. Usually when you're at death, those that are closest to you are on your heart and mind. And when Jesus was near death, he was praying for you and me that we would be faithful and effective and help carry out his mission within the world. In his parables, Jesus teaches all the time about life in the kingdom, what the kingdom looks like, how people who are part of the kingdom act, how we should value and assess that kingdom. And so, too, do these two parables, these two brief parables that we're looking at this morning. Part of the kingdom teaching of Jesus Christ ever the master storyteller Jesus realized no doubt the appeal of found treasure who hasn't anticipated or hoped that he or she would find a treasure at some point when you went to the beach as a child if you had a shovel in your hand and a bucket you hoped that you would find something to treasure you were hoping as I did that when that shovel went in the sand it was going to hit Blackbeard's treasure chest right (laughs) you're going to find something that's so valuable that it's more of the valuable than anything else you might have. So Jesus uses this analogy of someone who finds a treasure buried in a field. Then he has to go out and buy the field because he has to have that treasure. Stories of found treasure exciting. There was one last year about a Captain Shaw who commanded the all-black 54th Massachusetts Regiment in the Civil War. And... Uh, he, his sword was lost. They thought forever. It was just found recently in the attic of a distant, distant relative. The sword, for, his battle sword. There was a story about uh, several years back about that I read in the paper about uh, Strawberry Chapel, one of the chapels of Ease outside of Charleston. And when the British were coming through, they took the communion ware, the silver, and buried it. But either they forgot where it was buried, or the person that buried it lost his life, but no one knew where it was buried until metal detectors were invented after World War II. They found the silver service and where it was buried on the church's property, a great find that they treasure today. When I was up in Philadelphia this past month, there was an article about a man that had bought a lottery ticket and never checked the numbers. And the winning ticket in that New York lottery was $24.1 million. And so the New York Lottery Commission started advertising this ticket. We know it was sold, and we know where it was sold, but it's never been turned in. So look in your pockets. Look in your glove uh, box of your car. That ticket is out there. So Jimmy Smith, 68 years old, decided he'd go through his his shirt pockets, and guess what he found? The winning lottery ticket for $24 million. We love stories of buried treasure. We love this one that Jesus tells. This man found what is the most valuable thing and made every arrangement so that he could have it. There are people who stumble upon the kingdom of God like that. Maybe some of us here today. You read a book. You heard a sermon. You had an experience in your life. And somehow you saw the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you claimed it because you knew If that's true, it's the most precious thing that you could have. Some people stumble upon God. Paul uh, in Romans quotes from Isaiah who says, God says through Isaiah, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask. And sometimes that's how we enter the kingdom. We almost stumble upon it. For other people, it's not a matter of stumbling upon it. It's a matter of going in search for it. Like the pearl. The pearl merchant looking for that one priceless pearl that's worth everything else he'd collected over the years. When he finds that pearl, he has to have it. So he sells everything that he has so that he can possess the ultimate prize. That ultimate prize that Jesus is talking about is being a part of the kingdom of God. Being in a right relationship with God and neighbor, But both of these brief parables are making the same point about this precious possession of the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says that I count everything else prior to my conversion as loss, as refuse, as garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and being known by Him. That matters more than all the other acc- accolades, all the other honors that could come. Along. So if you want to assess the kingdom of God, you can look at what Scripture says about it objectively and make a determination. If you think this book is speaking truly and authoritatively, then you can assess what it says about the kingdom that way and decide what it's worth. You can also do it subjectively. You can simply ask, what does my life, what do my habits reveal about how much or how little I cherish the church? Are my prayers for the church... Is my presence in the church? Is my participation in the life and work of the church? Can you sing with the psalmist that beyond your highest joys you prize her heavenly ways? You love her. You love God's kingdom. As Peter Bynum takes up his work among you, I challenge each person in each household to do a serious examination of your own discipleship and your own churchmanship we need to do that not only in this church but in this church but in churches throughout the land because I don't know if you are aware how much trouble the church is in today do you know about nuns do you know about duns by nuns I mean N-O-N-E-S people are asked what's your religious preference are you Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Catholic what? more and more people are simply saying none no religion and even more disturbing are the 65 million people who are called the duns. They've quit the church, they've left the church. The church disappointed them. Some preacher, some priest, especially in t- Pennsylvania this past month when I've been, all of that news broke from the attorney general about the greater abuse of children in those Catholic dioceses. I imagine more will be done if we redo that, that survey. But don't be part of the nuns and don't be part of the duns because Jesus Christ needs you, the church needs you, your new clergy need you and they need the best of you and all of you, not just what's left over. Not surprisingly, clergy are in trouble today. 20,000 men and women left the ministry in the year of 2012 alone. 70% of pastors surveyed in a survey of over 1,000 describe themselves as suffering from fatigue and burnout. Forty-eight percent, nearly 50 percent, of all newly ordained pastors, this is the most disturbing to me, resign within five years. Seventy-one percent of clergy say if they had another job, they would do it. The church is a difficult place to work. Because people come into a church full of vim, vigor, and vitality often. And they run into malaise, mediocrity. People who think the church is simply an option out there for good or for ill, but it's not necessary in their life. And they have high expectations because a lot of churches call clergy, we want you to solve this problem. It's not just the clergy that need to solve the problem. That's a problem for each of us. Whenever someone complains to me about the Presbyterian Church losing members, I say, how many members have you brought into the church? That's the test, isn't it? How often do you talk about your faith? How many people do you invite? How many people can look at your life and say, you know, maybe I ought to consider living for Jesus Christ or serving His church. So I admonish this church. I admonish each of you. Not to be like two churches in the book of Revelation. One was the church of Laodicea. And we read from John's hand that the risen Christ says, They're neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. Have no passion. And he says that Jesus will spew them out of his mouth. It makes him sick to see his people. So apathetic and unconcerned. Or the church at Ephesus which John says had lost its first love. When you're first in love, you're filled with passion, excitement, enthusiasm. But that can wane. It can wane in a marriage. It can wane in your relationship to your church as well. Don't let that happen. Maintain your passion and your commitment and your joy in being a part of this community of faith. This is no time to give up or to give in. But a time to redouble our efforts to be what God is calling us to be. Not just as a church but as individuals. Because if God can work through each of us and every household. This church will be and become all that it is capable of being and becoming. It's very difficult today for the church and for its clergy. And I think we need to be honest about that. Now in closing words you love to hear. But I'm going to add one more thing. You can not only assess the kingdom in an objective sense by saying what the scriptures say or in a subjective sense by looking at your own life and habits and commitments. But you can assess the worth of the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ by using your imagination. What would this nation be like had it not been for the church? Had it not been for men and women of faith who laid their lives... Their sacred honor, all of their resources, their family on the line for the sake of some cause that they thought was of God. Usually a liberating cause. That's the history of America. It's what's made us great as a people. The story of America is the story of freedoms gained over the generations by all kinds of people and all kinds of freedom. Freedom from tyranny, freedom from unfair representation and taxation, freedom from poverty, freedom from religious persecution. Men and women of faith have stepped up and addressed those issues and our country has changed as a result of that. Freedoms have been won by different races, by different minorities, by women. And they've been won because people of faith had the courage to deal with those things forcefully, forcefully and Honestly. I said I've been in Philadelphia this past week, this past month, really. I've been preaching in a little historic church downtown Philadelphia that's been there since the revolutionary days. It's an amazing church. 281 revolutionary soldiers buried in the graveyard. It's a small church, less than 200 members. There was a price put on the head of the pastor of that church, George Duffield, by the king of England. George III. John Adams said it was a sermon preached in that church that convinced him to sign the Declaration of Independence. Risking everything to do so. But it's amazing to think of the sacrifices that have been made by those who've gone before us in the faith and in the history of this nation. We are forever in their debt. Larry Fedora, who is the football coach at the University of North Carolina, said shortly before I left town, I thought about this, UNC coach says if football goes down, so does America. (laughs) I know what he was talking about. You know, there's a lot of attack on football these days because of the injuries that come from it, and I know that has really enhanced our military in many ways, but I would disagree with Fedora in the sense it's not... America's not going to go down if football goes down. But if the church goes down, America will go down. Because our liberties that we that have been won for us, hard won, depend upon what the church has to offer and what the church teaches. And I don't think we can do it apart from the church. If people say, oh, I don't need the church, I can teach my own kids. That doesn't happen. Not with the many kids that I've run into. If the church isn't speaking the truth and teaching the faith then it's probably not being taught in the homes. The late Rufus Fears was a professor of American history at the University of Oklahoma. Brilliant professor. And he wrote about... No, I think his chair was the chair of freedom. It was called at the University of Oklahoma not of history. But he writes about freedom's won in this country. And he said... Our country's freedoms depend on two things. If they go away, the country will go away. One is truth, and the other is duty. Truth and duty. Good religion provides that. Now, a lot, a lot of people get disenchanted with bad religion. There's a lot of bad religion out there. But the alternative to bad religion is not no religion, it's sound religion. Sound religion preserves and seeks the truth. And it talks about duty. That was one of the wonderful things in watching some of the funeral service for John McCain recently. Just his profound sense of duty, doing the right thing, whether it's a popular thing, with my party, with my people, whoever. Pursue the, and do the right thing. It's your duty, it's not just your option. Truth and duty. Without it, our liberties will not survive. So just imagine what our past as a country would be like without the church. Try to imagine what the future would be like without the church. That same John Adams wrote when the Constitution was passed in 1789 that this is a document that's suited to a moral and religious people. It is suitable for no other. If we're no longer a moral or religious people, there will be no preservation of our Constitution People will turn from it. So this nation depends upon truth and duty with sound religion ought to provide. And surely you know that both are in jeopardy today. Truth is up for grabs. We don't have the truth. Is truth dead? Time Magazine asked in a recent issue. We need to expect and demand the truth from every quarter. From the White House, to the media, to Congress, to the pulpit. And we ought to be satisfied with no less. We speak the truth. We speak it in love. We speak the truth as God enables us to understand it. And when truth is in jeopardy, so too is freedom. So too is the church. And not only truth, but duty. People don't like to talk about duty. People don't like to hear about duty. Especially younger generations. They talk about opportunities and privileges and options, but not duties. Some adults haven't spoken of their duty since they were Boy Scouts and said, oh my honor, I'll do my best to do my duty to God and country. Last fall during stewardship season, I talked about the duty we have in Stewardship. It's not just an option. It's part of what God expects of us. I got a lot of pushback from that. From people who didn't want to hear about duty. No, this is my privilege. Now, great. It should be your privilege. It ought to be your joy. But it's also your duty. So, truth and duty. It's a, some, the church at its best has provided that for a society that is free and for a society that will continue. And if it doesn't continue... If we seek to provide that, then we are in jeopardy as a people. Surely you know we live in strange times in this country and in this culture. We live in a time where truth is simply a matter of opinion, alternative facts. Morality is a matter of choice. Now that's your opinion, my opinion, this is what I choose. And duty is simply a matter of privilege or options. So it's paramount for people of faith to assess what does this church really mean to me and what do my habits and my lifestyle say about how much I value her and how much I will continue to serve her. As Peter and Bart take up their work among you, please do an assessment of your own life. Look into your own heart and ask yourself, what am I willing to do and to be for Jesus Christ who did it all for me? He calls me into his church, and he wants to use me there, not to serve myself, but to serve others, to serve him and to serve my neighbor to the best of my ability. May God enable you to do that, and I'm convinced you've got, you're at a great point in the life of your history, and as each of you redouble your efforts with your new leadership coming in, I think you can accomplish amazing things, not only in the old village, but in the global village to which you're so committed.